This webinar recording is brought to you by Islam and Liberty Network. If you are looking for more, you can find it on our website at islamandlibertynetwork.org. Today, we have a webinar by Ali Salman. Ali is an economist and has master's degrees in economics, public policy, and business administration. He has worked as a consultant and trainer for major international development organizations, public sector organizations, and nonprofits. Ali is a founding member of Islam and Liberty Network and also the founder of Policy Research Institute of Market Economy and CEO of Institute for Democracy and Economic Affairs. Our host for the webinar is Ira Azari. However, she had technical issues, so I will be covering her in this podcast. The topic is Islamic Foundations of Market Economy. Hello, good evening everyone. My name is Ira Azhari. I'm the Coordinator for Democracy and Governance at the Institute for Democracy and Economic Affairs. And um, before I hand over to Ali, um, this is a short introduction. Uh, Ali is an economist by training uh, and he has authored uh, Discord of Social Justice and Economic Freedom in Islam, as well as Libertarian Char- Characteristics of the Islamic he is currently based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, but he's originally from Pakistan. So without further ado, I will hand over this evening session to Ali. Uh, thank you, Ira, um, for the introduction. Uh, today's uh, topic um, we have chosen is the Islamic Foundations of uh, Market Economy, in which I'm going to discuss uh, certain principles of economy as per my own understanding as founded in the primary sources of uh, Islam, uh, Quran and Hadith. Later on, I will present some thoughts from the classical uh, jurists as well as scholars who have talked about economy. And also, uh, in the end, I will talk about the modern subject of Islamic economics. And I will hopefully draw some comparison and end at the need of um, some more research in this area. I have a prepared presentation just to ease our discussion. And um, so I will go with that. I like I would like to start our conversation on the Islamic concepts of market economy with this verse of Quran, uh, which is chapter number two, Surah Al-Jumma, verse number nine and ten translation by N.J. Daud, uh, which translates as uh, believers, when you are summoned to Friday prayers, hasten to the remembrance of God and cease your praying. That would be best for you if you but knew it. Then when the prayers are ended, disperse and go your ways in quest of God's bounty. Remember God always so that you may prosper. I consider this verse uh, as an important instruction, important guideline from God Almighty to Muslims which is saying that immediately after the Friday prayer, you have to go back to commerce to seek your risk. And and therefore, there's no separation in that sense. And therefore, commerce occupies a very central importance in the Islamic history and Islamic civilization as well. What are the principles of economics in Islam? And um, I will use some of the important verses which I found very relevant for discussion. And then I'm also explaining the principles which can be derived from these verses. So the first principle um, I am drawing here is the importance of uh, voluntary exchange and trade with frugality and preference of savings over consumption. Actually, there are these are obviously different concepts, uh, voluntary exchange trade 
as well as preference over savings, uh, preference of savings over consumption. But I see and I find this verse, chapter number four, verse number 29, as very important and comprehensive guideline. It says that believers uh, do not consume your wealth among yourselves in vanity, but rather trade with it by mutual consent. And this shows, as I said, the importance of both voluntary exchange and, and trade. And at the same time, the importance of the sa uh, saving, which is critical for uh, for trade. The second important principle, in my view, in the divine's uh, scheme of economics is mentioned in the chapter 43 and verse 32, which is, it is we who deal out to them their livelihood in this world, exalting some in ranks above others so that one may take the other into his service. You know, the, the question and the notions of uh, equality and uh, inequality is one of the essentially most important and critical questions in the discipline of economics. Um, and as we know from our reading of economics, this has still not been resolved. You know, economic thinkers have um, argued that we should seek more equality like Karl Marx, but then the thinkers and the economists more on the side of the, um, uh, let's say, free markets and capitalism have argued otherwise and have they have accepted that it is uh, inequality is actually a natural outcome of the uh, capitalistic mode of production in which different actors would play different roles. And uh, we see this message of God, there are different parts of society, they have different roles, not just in this verse, but also in other places. And I interpret this as an evidence of acceptance of inequality as science scheme, uh, which provides us uh, as, as human beings, as agents to actually move and actually to encourage us to be socially mobile. The third principle is the sanctity of property rights, for which I refer to the last uh, sermon of uh, Prophet Muhammad in which he said that, uh, oh people, just as you regard this month, this day, this city as sacred, so regard the life and property of every Muslim as a sacred trust. The importance of private property rights has been often mentioned as an important pillar uh, economic thought process in Islam and also is acknowledged as an important institutional pillar of market economy, as uh, which can be contrasted with the planned or central planned, uh, central planned economy in which the property rights are not privately owned, but they are defined and they are owned by the state uh, at large. And we find various other examples uh, that Islam would respect private property rights. And, and as such, it has not imposed any upper limit on, for instance, the acquisition of the property itself. However, there there are examples and there is a there are some discussions in the Islamic history which also indicate that there are certain limitations on the use of the property. Uh, although there is no limitation on how much you can acquire, but there is a tradition attributed to the Prophet in which the uh, if you have a land and you don't harvest it, plow it for three years, then you lose the ownership right 
on that land and then it can be given to other Muslims who would be maybe better able to actually use that land and earn livelihood. Obviously, this limitation on the private property rights is something which is not consistent with our modern understanding of property rights, but I think there is a, this is an important distinction. The fourth principle, which I consider very, very important, is uh, the principle of price freedom. And there, uh, there's a hadith uh, which has been mentioned in um, all the major compilation of hadith except uh, Sahih Bukhari with more or less similar wording. At the time of messenger of God, the market price rose in Medina. And the people said, O messenger of God, fix the price. He replied, God is the taker and the disposer, the provider and the controller of prices. I hope that when I meet him, none of you will have a claim against me for an injury concerning life and property. Um, so in, in this uh, hadith, we actually uh, see further endorsement of the principles of private property and Prophet's insistence that he is not going to intervene in the prices. In this incident is reported over like a few times uh, in Sira, which, which means that this is essentially a consistent an important principle in the economic policy set up by the Prophet himself. But in the interpretation of his hadith, and I have written you know, on this aspect a little bit more details um, in my essay, uh, the, the jurists have come up with various interpretations. So for instance, there are two types of interpretations of this hadith. One is the Hanafi school, which argued that although price control, which is tasir, called, is called tasir in the Islamic law, is prohibited, but in certain circumstances for the public welfare, it is warranted. So they have found conditions and examples where they believe that the price uh, control can be introduced. Uh, the other set of interpretation is coming from the Shafi'i school, which is more literalist, Shafi and Hamli school, which is more literalist interpretation of this hadith, prohibition of price control. And it says that actually price controls are not allowed. And um, if you introduce price control, it actually erodes the welfare principle uh, as such. So the principle number five, you know, sort of a definition of profit and, and wealth creation. And they, this often comes as a part of discussion and economic policy, how profit is determined, how much profit is legitimate, is there a percentage uh, which is recommended by Sharia. Obviously, there is no fixed percentage mentioned by sources of Sharia, but I found a, a hadith which is uh, quite educative, uh, which um, uh, roughly translates as profit earned depends on the degree of risk assumed. Essentially in Arabic it is al-khilaj with zaman, just two words, and which which shows that this kind of definition will only come from a prophet who himself has led a very active life as a trader and an entrepreneur who understood the dynamics of business with a lot of depths. Another important principle in terms of the economics is the, the definition of the market. This actually pertains to 
um, a practice um, in the Arab society at that time, which was then forbidden by the Prophet. That when a trade caravan used to arrive in the in the city of Medina, now we are in Medina, and the Prophet had uh, assumed also role as a ruler. You know, people used to go outside uh, the city limits and uh, used to intercept the uh, incoming trade caravan and exchange of information. They would actually, you know, take the information about the demand from the city and go up to talk to traders and kind of a, a third party in the trade who had not directly participated in the trade process itself. I mean, they were not customers and of course they were not suppliers. And the prophet forbade this practice. He said, prophet said that do not wait outside the town for persons who bring goods to the market in order to buy up their goods. And interestingly, one of the very first institutions which the prophet set up in Medina after the masjid itself was a marketplace. And he said that all transactions have to take place physically in that boundary line, which allowed for, you can say, uh, better monitoring a better regulation on the economic transitions by then uh, state itself. The seventh principle of economics, in, in my understanding, is is this institution of hisba. In very simple terms, hisba, you know, inspector or, or someone's, it's like an accountability institution. The first muhtasib in in the market in that sense, Hazrat Umar who was appointed by the Prophet to actually perform certain rules in the marketplace, which I consider important functions for consumer protection and um, enforcement of contracts. There, you know, there is uh, the research suggests that they actually played these roles. So they would do inspection of measures and quality of product. Uh, they would see if the contracts are enforced in the market. They would see as uh, their the market rigidities and there which speculative sales are not present. They would ensure that price discrimination, uh, monopolistic practices, collusion, dumping, and hoarding of necessities is not practiced. And uh, they would also have some powers. They would give advice, but they would also have powers by obstruction, by force, threaten, or even imprisonment. And um, even uh, expel, uh, expulsion of individuals from the market if the inspectors saw that these uh, conditions are not being met by any participant of the market. So uh, the conclusion which I draw from this discussion in terms of the economics principle is that largely we have an economic system in Islam which is uh, which is based on economic freedom, which is based on private property rights, price freedoms, uh, trade freedoms, and the, uh, but there is also a great uh, sense of consumer protection and of course, uh, and, and um, respect of consumer rights. As you can see that in this list of uh, Hisba, we do not have price control. So you have everything but price control in this uh, list of duties. And I think this is important to mention uh, then how this uh, combination of uh, freedom and justice constitute the fundamental parts of the economics in the Islamic principles. I'd like to move on to certain other aspects of, uh, of economics um, in the Islamic foundations, I think which are important also. 
core discussion in economic freedom these days is about the role of the government in the economy. In my humble opinion, size of the government in an Islamic economy should be capped at the size of zakat and other obligatory taxes on production, such as usher. We know, for instance, the rates which have been defined uh, range from 2.5% to 10%. And that is, in my view, the range in which uh, the you know, government should operate as a percentage of uh, GDP. Now, in this day and age, this looks quite impossible because the government um, in, in, in a, let's say in the US uh, about 50% uh, of GDP and uh, Germany is another plus 50%. You, you see you know, very high rates of taxation elsewhere, which increases the size of the government. Um, however, if we go back, um, let's say about 100 years uh, before early 20th century, actually the size uh, which, which I believe uh, before World War I, when we have the foundations of prosperity largely financed uh, in which these you know, citizens and private sector were playing more important role, uh, the size of the government in the GDP was about five to six percent in US, uh, in UK in, and other important capitals, which uh, essentially suggests there's a small government, limited government is better for economic freedom. Some of the uh, hadiths which I use as um, as evidence are, are mentioned here. The, um, uh, after you have paid the zakat of your wealth, you have paid all that was required of you by the state. Tirmizi. Another, uh, there is no share in the wealth of people for the state except zakat. So this has been mentioned in compilations of uh, these. It suggests a small government is. Um, is indeed consistent with the Islamic uh, notions of economy. Also, I think it's um, the, the subject of inheritance has received considerable attention in the Islamic uh, law historically because Quran has made very explicit guidelines on the inheritance it, itself. And therefore, I believe that in, in, in the light of that principle and discussion, I say that a state uh, cannot claim inheritance and hence cannot impose any kind of inheritance tax in Islam. The only exception is if a deceased person does not have any indirect or indirect relatives who could claim inheritance. And then in that scenario, the property left is associates to the state treasury. Otherwise, uh, the details are very clear. Uh, in fact, uh, as we understand that according to Islamic law, only one third of the property can actually be written in a will, and so that's the maximum limit which can be left to the discretion of the person who has left a property. Now, this means two things. One is that, they, again, as I said, the concept of private property has certain upper bounds limitations in the Islamic uh, concept. Um, and secondly, it's a question of distribution, which is based on the family. We will see later that this is essentially also the basis of charity in an Islamic economy, the importance of society and the family rather than the state in distribution. So no inheritance tax and uh, limitations on how much you can actually give away as, as will uh, because all other guidelines are defined uh, very clearly. One important institution which has kept quite consistent as entity is the institution of work which goes to the prophet time himself and it is also reported that he saw a jewish tribe actually practicing 
some kind of an early work when he adopted that institution as an Islamic institution, which essentially means that a person who can actually define so work was identified as a civil society institution developed by early Muslim societies that enable people to resist vigorously any attempt by the state to take over the wealth of individuals. So the purpose of a trust uh, as the normal current English law also acknowledges uh, provides this kind of protection to the trust owners in the sense of what can be the purposes and what can be the use of such trust and the income from the trust. And again, this establish a very fine balance between the private ownership, which is given importance over the state control. So trust were providing protection to individuals against the state. The trust came with this religious sanction. So once the trust is defined, then actually state was not allowed to change the objectives, to change the purpose of for which it was originally established and it served for centuries as an institution, not just for social welfare, also for needs such as uh, healthcare, travel, and during Ottoman Empire, trust was also used as a microfinance institution for extending loans to entrepreneurs. So there are various uses of trust that we have seen of the books, actually, uh, which we've seen have been used until the the colonial times when these bucks, these properties were taken over by the state. So the all buck properties were nationalized. Uh, and unfortunately, after the decolonization, after the Muslim majority countries assumed um, political freedom, most of these institutions remained with the state, which is currently the case. My last slide, you know, on the economic principles, as well as the the primary sources of Islam concern is this one. This is a possible solution to negative externalities, which is often a subject of environmental economics. An incident is reported, which I have reported here. A dispute occurred between two persons, one having a tree on other, other's land. The landowner found the trespassing on his land by the tree owner to be nuisance, and so took the matter to the Prophet and the prophet ordered the tree owner to sell the tree to the landowner and accept compensation or just simply give it to him. But the man refused and the prophet then allowed the landowner to cut it down and he made the landowner pay the price of the tree. This, in my view, uh, provides us a basic principle of how to solve the problem of negative externalities, that is the harmful effects of transactions which are not uh, covered in the formal transaction process, there are other people who are affected by that transaction, such as a factory polluting a downstream river and under that downstream, a village who is dependent, let's say, on the fisheries in that river, uh, then loses its livelihood due to the factory. Then how can it be solved? Of course, this has been addressed by environment economists based on transaction costs. We know uh, Coase theorem. Uh, well, I think there's a striking similarity and there is guideline which can be drawn from here. And again, it is important that in case of a dispute, a decision is awarded while monetizing both costs and benefits to respective parties. So private property is preserved and then it's a monetization of the use, which is important ultimately. In my second section of the presentation, I want to move to uh, quickly to some examples of classical views 
which were mentioned by the jurists. So it will give you some idea of how much in-depth thinking was present in our classical thinkers in terms of economic policies and economic uh, dynamics. For example, this quote by Ibn Qudama, who is a humbly jurist, 13th century, he writes that he belongs to the camp who is literal follower of this year, that is no price control. And he explains, in a way, the price control, the price control of price may give rise to price rise. The traders from outside will not bring their goods in a place where they would be forced to sell them at a price against their wish. So the local traders would hide the goods instead of selling. People would have less than their need. So they would prefer a higher price to obtain the goods. Both parties, sellers and buyers would lose. The sellers because they were prevented from selling their goods and the buyers because they were prevented from fulfilling their needs. So this act will be termed as forbidden. I don't need to explain that, but this is a very comprehensive explanation of why price controls are, are bad in terms of welfare principles. Again, one of the towering figures of Islamic thought and philosophy, Imam Ghazali, I present his uh, basic sets, which I called uh, negative rights. This is consistent with the idea of a negative freedom, that is freedom from coercion, that according to him, uh, the state is responsible for providing these rights to the individual protection of religion, protection of life, protection of reason, which is like uh, freedom of expression, protection of posterity, uh, right to raise family, and uh, protection of property. These five rights are provided, and Imam Ghazali mentions that these are the most fundamental pillars of rights which the state has to provide to the citizens. Again, a very uh, noteworthy philosopher, social scientist, historian, Ibn Khuldun, who has explained in his in, in Muqaddimah how prices are determined and he has given details of how profit needs to be measured and um, how profit is actually accrued. And the last line of his statement is, uh, you know, very simple. The truth about commerce, I shall give you in two words, buy cheap and sell dear, that is commerce for you. I also wish to present to you the what I consider the first form of law and supply and demand, except without a graph, from Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, writing in 14th century. Ibn Taymiyyah has a full book on economics, and so this is one quote from the book. If desires for goods increases while supply decreases, price rises, but if supply increases and desire decreases, prices decline. Those just a few reflections of how our classical jurists were looking at economics and economic theory. In sharp contrast, I quickly come to the modern discipline of Islamic economics. I'm not going into details on this aspect, but I have found that for the modern Islamic economics, a subject which is a 20th century subject, and this subject as such didn't exist before, poverty for these economists is more important as a subject matter than, than wealth creation, and they prefer to discuss social justice over economic freedom. One of the important figures in the Islamic economics is uh, Nawab Haider Naqvi, and I wish to present the main pillars of Islamic economics as defined by Nawab Haider Naqvi. Um, and again, he is a, a very respected scholar of Islamic economics, and ha he has in the past and also advised government. He was from Pakistan. He is from Pakistan, and in terms of how the Islamization of economy should occur, I have a look at these points and the level of composition of production and consumption, 
will be under direct and indirect control of Islamic State society. All citizens, irrespective of their ability to earn, will be guaranteed a reasonable level of income. Feasible rates of growth will be subjected to an upper limit to ensure a fair distribution of wealth and income. Income uh, will be absolutely equalized. The distribution of wealth will be equalized. Exploitation will be minimized by making labor share a function of the total profits of the industry. The institution of private property will be substantially diluted. Enterprises will be taken over by the state. When you read about Islamic economics, other than the discussion about interest-free banking, I'm not going in that direction in this talk, you will often find these discussions. And the notion which I have presented before you, which I believe is the true spirit of Quran and Hadith and all captured by classical scholars and jurists of Islam, have unfortunately been lost in the modern Islamic economic discipline and in their urge to perhaps distinguish themselves from mainstream economics. They have perhaps gone to the other side by drawing these kind of conclusions. Therefore, I think it's important, I believe, that more research is needed on what I believe is the, uh, there is a harmony between economic freedom and the classical Islamic foundations. But, you know, more research is needed to establish that. We see some good books coming out recently. And hopefully, uh, the challenge which is before us um, who are interested to discover the Islamic foundations of free markets and, uh, and economic freedom is not just to explore and discover these principles and say, okay, great, I found Ibn Taymiyyah saying something about law and supply and demand, or I found something about negative externality and uh, hadith, uh, or I found a notion about price freedoms or voluntary trade in Quran. But I think the challenge is that can we use some of these insights to address some of the important puzzles in the modern economic uh, debate or not? Uh, that is an intellectual challenge. But my main purpose of today's webinar is actually to just present to you before the first part, which is the exploration and discovery of uh, principles of economic freedom and market economy in the Islamic foundations. Thank you so much for your patient uh, hearing. I hope that we can have some conversation. Thank you. Ira. Uh, thank you very much, Ali. Uh, that was very uh, insightful and enlightening, especially for me who background economics so that was very useful. Mohammed Amin asks, have you read Timur Quran's research on walk-ups in the Ottoman Empire? Yes, the Timur Quran is actually critical of the role played by the Waqf in the Ottoman Empire and he has argued that Waqf uh, as understood and as practice in the Islamic history uh, played a role which was not positive, which was not conducive for economic development. They might have actually been on the other side. They they actually uh, sort of led to decline of Islamic civilization or social institutions. The book which I mentioned in the last slide, which is still here, uh, Benedict Kohler. Benedict Kohler has actually addressed some of these aspects. And there also there is uh, you know, research which I quoted in this presentation uh, by Masli Malik, for instance, in which he has found the evidence that actually Waqf were not as rigid as an institution as the Quran has argued, and they, they were not to be blamed for the lack of development. And in fact, this book by Kohler is interesting because it shows that uh, within Ottoman Empire, for instance, there were uh, these free trade zones, uh, what called um, fundu, these special zones for non-Muslims who were 
able to operate uh, as per their own laws. So there were multiple legal systems existing in the Islamic heartland just to encourage actually more trade and commerce. So that's that, that's the other viewpoint. Uh, but yes, the uh, Quran work on research is quite critical of the role of Qatar. Muhammad Amin follows up. Do you consider that the Quranic inheritance rule were specific to Arab society at the time or whether they are intended to be universal and timeless? In my humble opinion, generally Quran has um, avoided providing the details of systems such as economy, politics, etc. However, there are instances where we have actually detailed discussions. We have the discussion on inheritance uh, laws, um, discussion on the importance of contract, the verse of Quran is on the contracts and documentation, is in my view has a more universal appeal and uh, therefore I consider them to be valid as long as uh, Quran has not specified uh, the details of, of any system, then I think it has been left to discretion. Uh, but where it is mentioned in the sense of uh, being universally applicable. All right, it seems that uh, no more uh, questions. Um, uh, thank you so much, everyone, for being here and participating in this discussion. What I have presented before you is really an outline and a skeleton of my thought process. I think it is important that to continue this kind of uh, discussion and to perhaps do it in a more organized manner. Just to share with all of you, I have been asked by the Acton Institute, which is a think tank based in the US, actually to uh, formalize this argument in the form of a monograph, which I aim to complete uh, this year. So inshallah, uh, I'll be putting these thoughts more in an elaborate manner. I'll be happy to share the slides. Um, I think, uh, I, I don't know if you can download, to be honest, uh, try, <laughs> but I'll, I'll be able to share on email with all of you. Over to you, Ira. Okay, uh, thank you very much, uh, Ali Salman, uh, for that very uh, informative presentation. I'm sure all our participants this evening uh, had learned a lot from the presentation, and we are looking forward to reading your monograph and um i think that's all for me as well so have a good evening and uh, have a good week this webinar is brought to you by islam and liberty network if you are looking for more you can find it on our website at islamandlibertynetwork.org and if you want to help us there is a donation button on the site thank you for your support and we hope you found it interesting